We read from God's Word, the Gospel according to Luke. We turn to Luke chapter 1. We're beginning to read at verse number 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. You will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. God's way of working is not our way. And don't we encounter many examples of that in the course of life? Times when we think, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. I wouldn't have planned it that way. And yet the Lord does something different, something perhaps completely unexpected. And we might have expected when the Messiah was coming into the world, after centuries of promises through the prophets, that coming would be announced far and wide. It would be announced to the world. Nobody surely would be left in any doubt when the Messiah finally arrived. Wouldn't it be something that nobody would fail to know about? Isn't that how God would have done it? And yet, in fact, the Lord's preparations for the coming of the Messiah into the world actually involved very few people. As we would say, you could count them in the fingers of one hand. Very few were involved. The central figure in the coming of the Messiah was a young girl in an obscure little town, in an utterly insignificant part of the world. If you'd asked people at random in the Roman Empire, where is Judea? 
Have you ever heard of Bethlehem or Nazareth? They'd have probably looked at you blankly. It was a part of the world that to most people simply didn't matter. The Lord does things his way. So today we're looking at the portion we read earlier in Luke 1, verses 26 to 45, the coming king. The coming king. Several things we see uh, in this portion. It's very familiar in some ways, and yet perhaps there are aspects of it we haven't noticed. And always when we come to God's word, however familiar we think it is, there's always more. And there's Perhaps something that speaks to us reading it today that we didn't notice before because our circumstances were different. The coming king. First and foremost, of course, we have Gabriel's announcement. Gabriel's announcement. And the significance of the occasion is clear from the one who is sent to bring the announcement. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, one of the greatest of the angels in the heavenly hierarchy is sent to bring this message. We said last time as we thought of the visitation of the angel to Zechariah, visits by angels are rare in scripture. Our thought might sometimes be angels were popping up all over the place and they were forever bringing messages, but they weren't. A visitation of an angel was a very rare occurrence and always in a situation of great importance. And so it is in this case. Few greater occasions could be envisaged. Uh, And as almost always with the visitations of angels, Gabriel begins with reassurance. How often the angels will say to the person uh, that they're bringing a message to, don't be afraid, because that's a natural first reaction that people have. Here, Gabriel says uh, to Mary, greetings. Uh, In the Latin uh, translation, it's Ave, hence you get the Ave Maria and all of that paraphernalia. Simply greetings. It's perfectly ordinary greeting, not hail, it's not coming to some exalted person, simply greetings. The angel speaks to her, you who are highly favored. We need to understand what those words mean and what they don't mean. Gabriel is speaking to Mary, yes, with great respect, highly favored. And yet there's nothing in his words remotely approaching the kind of veneration that's later given to Mary. She is honored, she is favored by God, but what comes out so clearly in this passage that Mary is the recipient of God's grace and blessing. She's not the giver of them. Mary receives grace from God. She doesn't channel God's grace to other people. She isn't a source of blessing. She's a recipient of blessing. It's crucial that we see what the text in the gospel is actually saying. And notice the focus of the message. In a profound sense, this isn't about Mary. The focus is on the Messiah. It's all about him. 
That's why we've entitled this study The Coming King. We'd have called it something like the Annunciation to Mary. That would have been perfectly in order, but the focus is on the Messiah. It's all about him. And there's several things in particular about the Messiah that are clear from Gabriel's message. You see, first, his person. Who is this going to be? Well, it's clear from the names that he's given. Jesus, verse 31. It's another version of the name Joshua. It means the Lord saves. Perfectly common name for a Jewish boy. There's nothing unusual about the name uh, that's being given to the child. God saves. That immediately tells us that his mission is to bring salvation. You remember, as we've often said, names are significant in biblical culture. People are given names for reasons. And his name will be Jesus because he will bring salvation. He will be the the ultimate Joshua. And will do what Joshua in the Old Testament, of course, could never do, bring salvation. But it is a name that reminds us of his humanity. It was an ordinary human name that many others would have shared. The humanity of the coming child, one who shares our nature. We should never lose sight of that. It is a precious truth. He shares our nature, with the exception of sin, of course. But it is our human nature that the Messiah shares. Jesus, God saves. So he's human, and yet, At the same time, Son of the Most High, verse 32. A very striking title that is given to him, Son of the Most High. What does that tell us about him? Well, the Most High was a title that's often given to God in the Bible. You can find it in Psalm 7, for example, verse 10. God is the Most High. So what does it mean when we are told that the Messiah will be Son of the Most High? Our first inclination might be to think, well, the Son is less than the Father. He's inferior. But that's not how people in the biblical world would have thought. The Son shares the Father's nature. A human son shares his Father's nature. And so here, the Son of the Most High is one who shares the nature of the Most High. He's not inferior. He's not less. In fact, it's a title that tells us the Messiah is not only human, but also God. Son of the Most High is a title of deity. And so the person of the Messiah, the child who will be born of Mary, is both God and man. He will be Jesus, sharing our humanity. He will be Son of the Most High, sharing the very nature of God himself. God and man in one person, 
There never was and there never will be again one like this, utterly unique. His person. But also in Gabriel's announcement, we see his kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom. And you've that in verse 32 and verse 33. Profoundly messianic language. Everything in those verses speaks of Messiah, of the fulfiller of all the hopes of God's people down through the centuries. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. In fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David centuries before. 2 Samuel 7, for example, Turn it up. You can read there God's covenant with David. And it involved the provision of a king who would sit on the throne of David. 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. So the throne of David was eternal. But there's one problem, of course, in those days, as Gabriel was speaking to Mary. There was no king ruling over Israel on the throne of David. This was a subject nation. They were under the heel of the Roman occupiers. There was no Davidic king. Indeed, there wouldn't be again. And Jesus would never rule over some earthly dominion. He wasn't going to sit in Jerusalem on a throne and rule over the Jews. So what does it mean? What is Gabriel saying? What were they, the promises of the Old Testament signifying? And they were signifying that the kingdom would be a spiritual kingdom. A spiritual kingdom that wasn't confined to one piece of territory on earth. It would be a worldwide kingdom over Jew and Gentile that King Jesus would reign over. King Jesus who would bring salvation, not from political enemies, not from an occupying Roman power, but from sin. That's the king who would sit on the throne of his father, David. A king who would reign over a spiritual kingdom of grace and salvation. Far greater than any kingdom of David or Solomon or their successors. A worldwide spiritual kingdom of grace and salvation. So in Gabriel's announcement about the Messiah, we see his person, we see his kingdom, and we see his conception. His conception. Because the conception of this child will be a miracle of God. Now we tend, and we certainly do in theology, to talk about the virgin birth. But to be more accurate, we should be talking about the virgin conception. That's the miracle. The the birth of Jesus was a normal human birth. It's his conception that's crucial. And it has to be a miracle. Because the record stresses 
As Mary says in verse 34, I'm a virgin. In normal human scientific terms, this can't happen. There's no question of a natural conception. It would seem that if Jesus had been conceived in the normal way, the human father and a human mother, he would have been implicated in the inherited sin of Adam. That's not spelled out in detail in Scripture, but theologically that is the case. A normal conception of the human father and a human mother would have meant Jesus inherited with us the sinful nature of Adam. He'd have been a sinner like us and would have needed a saviour. He wouldn't have been a saviour. He would have needed a saviour. But instead, as Gabriel says in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's a profound mystery. Our minds can't fathom what God is doing here, but he's doing something glorious and miraculous, and the result will be God's work and God's work exclusively. And so Jesus will be the Holy One, fitted to save us from sin. That's the importance of the virgin conception of Jesus. It breaks the link with Adam. He is not a descendant of Adam. He is not sinful in Adam. He's not fallen in Adam as we all are. And so he is able to be our Savior. And it was a miracle. Indeed, it seems we pick up hints in the Gospels. There were were rumors in the community about Mary's immorality in having this child. One occasion, the the scribes and Pharisees say to Jesus, we know who our father is. And the implication seems to be, well, do you know? There were questions about it because this was not the natural process. But it is a miracle. Gabriel's announcement, it's all about the Messiah. His person, his kingdom, his conception. This is God in human flesh. This is God coming to reign over a kingdom of grace and salvation. This is the Son of God in human flesh as a result of the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit, Gabriel's announcement. We also see here, in the second place, Mary's faith. Mary's faith. Of course, we know in the course of history, much improper veneration has been accorded to Mary. The theory in traditional Roman Catholic theology is that there's a level of veneration for the saints. And then there's the veneration and worship due to God. And in the middle, higher than saints but lower than God is Mary. And the ordinary worshiper is meant to be able to distinguish the three levels of veneration that are to be accorded. A passage like this shows us the real character of this woman and tells us who Mary was and the kind of woman she was, how we should view her. Of course, the 
reaction has often been against that improper veneration of Mary has been to ignore her and have no thought about her. And that is wrong because here is a woman who is an example to God's people. She's young. She is probably a teenager. Pledged to be married to Joseph, we're told in Matthew 1.18. Joseph, most likely a, a rather older man, but pledged, engaged. And in that culture, this is as binding as a marriage. You need to understand that. It can only be ended by a divorce. This isn't just like a broken engagement in our culture. Sad, but there you go and move on. This needs a divorce if it is to be ended. That is how binding uh, the commitment is. And in this situation, engaged to be married to Joseph, we might say Gabriel drops a bombshell. You are going to have a child. She's not married. She's a virgin. She's going to have a child. And everything we see about Mary at this point is instructive. Profoundly instructive. Three words sum up, I think, what we see about Mary here. First, favor. Favor. Because Mary is the recipient of God's grace. You who are highly favored, verse 28, Gabriel's greeting. Then verse 30, you have found favor with God. The emphasis is not on Mary deserving God's favor, certainly not, but on God graciously bestowing favor on her. And it is very, very significant in verse uh, 47, beyond where we read today. In Mary's song, she addresses God, my Savior. God, my Savior. Mary is a sinner saved by the grace of God. The sinlessness of Mary is an invention. And Mary is probably horrified by all of that veneration and talk of her sinlessness. Indeed, in the end, her assumption into heaven without having to die. Mary is a sinner saved by grace. Praise the Lord, she is. She's like us. She's like any of us who know and love the Savior. She's like all believers. And Mary is a testimony to the undeserved grace of God. She is just like us, a sinner saved by grace. The favor God grants is not what she deserves. It is what God and his love gives her. Favor. But secondly, fear. Fear. Very human response uh, to Gabriel's announcement and appearance. Uh, Any of us would be overwhelmed and shocked. And then the message that she receives, we're told in verse 29, she was greatly troubled at his words. And it's a strong uh, word, a particularly strong form of the word for troubled. You get it quite often in the Gospels. 
It would be a word used of a storm-tossed sea. When the wind howled down through the mountains on the Sea of Galilee and whipped the water into a storm that terrified the fishermen disciples, the sea and their hearts would be troubled. That's the picture contained in the word uh, that Luke uses here. She is deeply storm-tossed by the message that Gabriel brings her. She's shaken to the core by his visit. And no wonder, when we think of the message uh, that he was bringing her and the prospect uh, that lay ahead of her. So again, verse 30, do not be afraid. Often the angels are saying, do not be afraid. Because when an angel visits in this way, he's bringing good news. Do not be afraid. And it has the sense of stop being afraid. We've said this before. In Greek, you can prohibit somebody from starting to do something. And you can tell somebody to stop doing what they're already doing. Those are obviously very different. And this is a stop doing what you're doing. Gabriel isn't saying to Mary, don't start being afraid. She is afraid. Gabriel's saying, stop being afraid. You don't need to be. Stop being afraid. Mary's a flesh and blood person like the rest of us. She's afraid when she's called to a great task. Can you identify with that? The Lord calls you to do something and you think it's too much for me and you're afraid. You're like, I can't take this on. I can't do it. Mary's like that. Mary, a sinner saved by grace, is like us. She's afraid and she's troubled by what the angel is saying and what God is asking of her. Well, he's not asking, he's telling her what's going to happen. Favor, fear, and faith. Faith. What stands out in the gospel records about Mary in this particular situation is the strength of the faith. But you see, in such a young woman, strong faith, despite the fear and the storm-tossed heart, there's strong faith. And this is what we want to see and to honor in Mary. Not sinlessness, not a channel of salvation. A believing woman of faith that we can identify with. She's been asked, remember, to commit herself, body and soul, and it is both, it is really both for Mary, body and soul, to God's work. And in a way that will have major implications, the social impact for Mary could be very significant in a small community. And this will bring problems as well that she can't even begin to imagine. When she takes Jesus to the temple and Simeon says to her, a sword will pierce your heart 
She has no idea what that will mean for her. That she'll see her son on a cross, breathing out his last breath, and she'll stand there and watch him. She has no idea all that this is going to mean for her. But she knows enough to know this is a vast challenge that's set before her. And yet the voice of a strong, God-given faith, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Submission and commitment. And don't you see God's grace there? Don't you see the grace she received from God to be able to answer such a call with such submission and commitment? Mary is an outstanding example of a God-enabled faith that submits to the will of the Lord and commits to his service, whatever he asks, and whatever the implications are going to be. And it's for that that we honor Mary. It's for that that we seek to imitate her. A sinner saved by grace and a woman of faith. Gabriel's announcement Mary's faith, and finally Elizabeth's testimony. Elizabeth's testimony, because there are two women of faith in this passage. We mustn't miss the second one. Mary visits Elizabeth, her relative. We're not sure what relative she was. Was she an aunt? Or we're not sure. Elizabeth's in the sixth month of pregnancy, and a very significant event that we read in this portion. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb, and his mother is filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's another godly woman of faith. We've already seen that in our last study, but here is Elizabeth once again, woman of faith. Do you notice the baby leaped for joy, we're told in verse 44. That's very significant. This is not some natural kicking of the baby at this stage in its development. He leaped for joy. Do you see what the Bible is telling us? At six months gestation, John is able to respond to the presence of the Messiah and to respond with joy. That's profound implications for our understanding of life before birth. John doesn't simply kick. He leaps for joy because he knows who is there. The Messiah. His Savior. It's a fulfillment, isn't it, of verse 15 about John. He'd be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Well, there he is. By the Spirit, he leaps with joy at the presence of the Messiah. The Messiah who's only just been conceived in Mary's womb. John knows he's there. And John is filled with joy. A 
That's what the Bible is telling us. Profound description. And by the Spirit's power, his mother Elizabeth speaks God's word. And look at what she says, verse 43. Mary is the mother of my Lord. What a profound understanding Elizabeth has of the identity of the baby who's just been conceived in Mary by the Spirit of God, the mother of my Lord. And Elizabeth knows that and knows this baby at its earliest stage of development is her Lord. The voice of faith, deep faith, God-given faith on Elizabeth's part. And she goes on, Blessed is she who's believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. That's the blessedness of Mary. Not as a mediatrix between sinners and God, but as a woman who trusted God's word and submitted to God's will. And that's blessedness. That's the real blessedness of any child of God. Mary, you, me, any Christian. The blessedness of trusting God's word and trusting in the Messiah who has just been conceived at this point in the gospel. Mary is blessed. Every believer is blessed by the grace of God. As we trust in the Messiah and receive the salvation and the kingdom that he gives us. Mary is a sinner saved by grace and an example of faith and submission to the Lord. But our focus must be on him, on the Messiah, on the Savior, on the one who is God and man, on the one who is the King, and the one who saves sinners like Mary and like us for the glory of God.